You may be seated. <clears throat> Scripture reading today is from Galatians, first chapter, first 12 verses. Salutation. Paul, an apostle, sent neither by human commission nor from human authorities, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead, and all the members of God's family who are with me, to the churches of Galatia. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to set us free from the present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. There is no other gospel. I'm astonished that you are so quickly deserting the one who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another gospel, but there are some who are confusing you and want to pervert the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should proclaim to you a gospel contrary to what we proclaim to you, let that one be accursed. As we have said before, so now I repeat, if anyone proclaims to you a gospel contrary to what you have received, let that one be accursed. Am I now seeking human approval or God's approval? Or am I trying to please people? If I were still pleasing people, I would not be a servant of God. Paul's vindication of his apostleship. For I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that the gospel that was proclaimed by me is not of human origin. For I did not receive it from a human source, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks, Thanks be to God. God. Well, happy 2016. So this is not a rehash of a New Year's sermon, I promise, but it is amazing how all the stuff that we were dreading or excited for or whatever for 2016 is really starting to happen about now, right? We're kind of getting full into swing with all of the craziness that's happening in our world, uh, even though we're already halfway through the year. The United Methodist Church has had its every quadrennium meeting to discuss the issues that hash out the Book of Discipline. It's an election year, which is probably not a surprise to anyone. And although we probably have vastly different ideas of what we would hope to happen in November, uh, I don't think any of us would disagree that this particular election year has been a little bit bizarre. Uh, so here I am, along with all of you, observing. I, we, we're all active and we're passionate about the things of the Bible and we're passionate about our politics, but we're also observing what's happening in the world. And what we're seeing is a lot of people who are right. As it turns out, everyone is right. And it turns out if you talk to them, they're all right. And they have all the truth. And if you, also, if you talk to them, you'll find out that there's another group of people who are all wrong and have everything wrong and everything that they believe in is completely false. But the problem is, is that you can't find those wrong people because if you go to those people and you talk to them, they tell you they're right. Right? So somehow or another, every single one of us is right, except that every single one of us is also wrong. So it's amazing the polarization that we've gotten to uh, at this point in our world. You know, it's amazing. The anger that we pit people towards one another and the way that we have decided somehow that people who run for office or people who are celebrities are no longer due the grace of Christ. It is amazing and almost sad to see a parent tell a child, uh, 
you know, just because people are mean to you at school doesn't mean you shouldn't be nice to them because Jesus wants you to live in a way that's more Christ-like and that wants you to live in a way that shows grace even to people who aren't nice. And then they learn all kinds of great new four-letter words to tell their friends when they hear mommy and daddy watch the TV and hear about politicians, right? So, I mean, we, 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 have, we, we, we say one thing and we do something completely different. And, and it seems as though we've decided that people who disagree with us aren't actually fully human. If they vote differently than we do, if they believe differently than we do, if they look differently than we do, then they aren't due the grace of Christ because they somehow aren't the same kind of person we are. They don't deserve what we deserve and that we're not called to love them. When Jesus tells us that everyone is supposed to be given some graciousness by us, suddenly those people don't qualify. And it all comes down to trying to be right. And being right is something that Christians have been trying to do for centuries. We even have words for it. There's a whole branch of study called epistemology. And epistemology is essentially trying to understand the difference between what is an opinion based on emotion and what is a justified belief, which is based on evidence. Now, it doesn't necessarily mean that one is wrong or right or better or worse, but it's trying to help us understand what is simply a belief of ours that we hold because maybe our parents believed it or because it's a good gut feeling or because it's the way we feel versus what is a belief that we have because of something of evidence, right? Whether it's a scientific belief or a political belief or a religious belief, is it based upon the relevant source? Is our religious belief, are our religious beliefs, when we're talking about epistemology in the church, are our religious beliefs simply the beliefs that we feel right about or the beliefs that maybe our parents taught us? Or are they beliefs that we can justify through Scripture, tradition, reason, and experience? So being right is something that we've been trying to do for 2,000 years. Now, as an example of what that justified belief is, is that my opinion is that the sky is blue. And because I and billions of others have observed the sky being blue, I can, can confidently call that a justified belief. There's probably someone in the world who thinks the world is green, the sky is green. But the funny thing is, they'll tell me that I'm the one with the opinion and they're the one with the justified belief. It's funny how that works. We can talk about it all day, about what is evidence-based and what is just opinion, what is just emotional and what is reasoned. But if you ask anybody, they're going to tell you the exact same thing. Even if they're wildly different about what they believe, they're going to tell you that they're the ones who are basing their notion upon reason and thought. We all believe that. We're all just a little bit arrogant. I think some of it's a necessity, right? If we didn't have some ounce of feeling like we were right, we would be terrible parents, right? If we didn't believe we were right enough to tell our kids the right way to go, then we would be terrible at at leading them. We would be terrible at our job if we didn't believe that we were the best one for the job, at least in that moment. We'd be terrible as friends if we didn't believe that we had the right words to say. If we didn't have a level of arrogance in our bodies, we we wouldn't work or function very well. But when that leaks out, from I'm right to you're wrong, suddenly we cross a very important line. Welcome to Christianity Indeed. We've been doing this for 2,000 years, and we find Paul talking about it this morning. Now, the letter to Galatians is a little bit unique for Paul. This isn't really important to the sermon, but it's a good trivia thing for a trivia night one night. There's one thing unique about Paul's letter to Galatians is that he doesn't name the people he's with. He just throws them together. depends on your translation of the Bible. It might say brothers and sisters. It might say the family of God or something like that. But essentially... Uh, Paul says, I'm with some other folks, and we all want you to know that, and he continues. Whereas in Timothy and others, he says, I'm with Timothy, or I'm with Phoebe the deacon, or I'm with Priscilla and Aquila, or I'm with this person, or that person, or these persons. Now, most theologians think that that's just because the people who he was writing to wouldn't necessarily know the people he was with, but that's just something unique to throw away and file in the back for the next time we have a a trivia night. Uh, But other than that, it's pretty much a textbook Pauline epistle. The letter opens up with a stern warning to stay the course. 
And that's as far as we'll get to today. I think there's enough there to talk about just the opening today. Now, he doesn't claim uh, just the authority of Scripture or of other apostles, but he actually claims the authority of Jesus himself. Now, Paul certainly was one uh, who uh, appreciated his ego. I think that's uh, fair to say. Uh, He was confident in himself, um, and he made it known here. He wanted the people who were reading to understand that he could be trusted because his beliefs came from Jesus Christ directly, not just from Scripture or the apostles, but directly from Christ. Even so bold as to say, even if an angel from heaven tells you different, the angel's wrong and I'm right, right? So Paul had just a tiny bit of an ego, but he says, look, you have got to stick with these beliefs. He's, this is what he says in all of his letters, right? All of his letters have some element of this. We picked the one from Galatians this morning because that was the lectionary scripture this morning. But the notion is the same. Listen, folks, you've been hearing a lot of stuff. You've been hearing a lot of different ideas, a different gospel. There is no other gospel. Jesus Christ came, died, rose again, and offers you salvation. That is what you need to stick with. That's essential. If you believe in something else, then you don't believe in Christianity, right? Remember, in the time period in the first century, the divisions among Christianity were not divisions about who gets ordained or what the pews look like or what kind of music we sing. The divisions are, was Jesus the Messiah? Well, okay, maybe Jesus was the Messiah then, but now we're supposed to get baptized by Paul and John. Maybe they're the Messiahs now, right? These were real discussions people were having. They didn't quite grasp the notion of God is eternal and Christ is eternal. These were Gentiles and, and these were, were converted Jews and these were, were, uh, were Samaritans. People with vastly different ideas about who God was. So Paul says, look, you figure that stuff out on your own, but there's an essential component here, the gospel of Jesus Christ. You have to know that. You have to stick to it. You have to believe it. And the people who are trying to stray you away from that, uh, you know, he's got some harsh words for them too because uh, this is essential. So he dives right into our two of our fun words this morning, orthopraxy and orthodoxy. So epistemology, we've talked about that. Orthodoxy means correct belief. Orthopraxy means correct practice. The opposite is hetero. So heterodoxy is an incorrect belief. Heteropraxy is an incorrect practice. The fun part is, is who gets to decide which one is ortho and which one is hetero, right? If you ask the right person, they'll give you a different answer. You know, the old joke about the divisions of the church over the years uh, is, you know, when the Eastern Church and the West Church split off, that created the Catholic Church and the Orthodox Church. Catholic means universal. So the Catholic Church will be the universal church for everyone. And the Orthodox Church said, that's fine, we'll be the right one. You know? But that is actually where that term comes from when it comes, when we talk about the Orthodox Church in the East. It literally just that they affirm that they believe that they have the right belief. Well, don't we all? We're all Orthodox in that sense. Uh, None of us are here standing saying that I think we've got it all wrong, but I'm going to keep preaching it anyway. That would be a little silly. But... Paul continues, and he tells us one of his, probably one of his most oft-misquoted and misunderstood lines when he says, am I trying to please humans or trying to please God? Now, there's a bit of a dichotomy here. What he's essentially saying is, I don't care if you like me for saying this. I don't care if you're happy about the gospel of Jesus Christ because it's the truth. Now, what Paul is talking about is a very specific thing, the gospel of Jesus Christ. But people have used this as almost as a litmus test, like there's a virtue in being offensive, or there's a virtue in being disliked. People take it as a badge of honor. They can't wait to be persecuted, so they find anything to to say that they're persecuted. Some guy down the street differs slightly with me in his beliefs, and he voiced that. He's persecuting me, right? We just love it. We we just love being on the sidelines because we read Paul, and we say, well, we're just like Paul. People don't like us. That means we're super Christian. Well, you got regular Christians that get along with people. Then you got really good Christians who kind of offend some people. Then you got super Christians who ticks off everybody. Those are the ones you want to be, right? But it doesn't work like that. 
clearly the truth is the truth, but maybe our job isn't to try and alienate everybody. Maybe, in fact, our job is to spread this gospel with conviction. So it's a short passage, but it's awfully clear. The gospel of Jesus Christ is the most essential component of our faith. To believe that Christ came, died, and rose again is what separates Christian from something else. But here's where it gets a little less clear. What exactly is right? The right practice, the right beliefs, the right faith. Christianity as a whole has evolved tremendously over the centuries in its understanding of a lot of things. So that kind of leads to the question of either it was wrong before or it's wrong now, right? I don't just mean individual denominations. I mean Christianity as a whole. There were things that most Christians believed a thousand years ago that no Christians believe today. There was a pretty significant belief that heaven was the sun and that the sun revolved around the earth and that's how God watched over the earth right? Well, science very clearly refuted that belief. They didn't shatter everybody's faith. They didn't make everybody a non-Christian. That just made them understand, well, I think we had that wrong. Clearly, we misunderstood. But, so then the question becomes, who's right? Who was right when? Now, the greater issue of this is when people say that things never change. I really dislike when people talk about the word, where they use the word tradition, because tradition to me is such a meaningless word. I like tradition, right? I use it all the time because I like it. I like the liturgy. I like the history of the church. But it was always new at some point. We're not doing things that are 2,000 years old. If we came into worship next week and we had a 2,000-year-old worship service, it would look like the Jewish temple down the road, if there was a Jewish temple down the road, right? Very little of the practices of early Christians differed from the practices of Jews for several hundred years. And we talk about things like marriage, and marriages and weddings have, have, are vastly different now than they were 50 years ago, than they were 100 years before that. We consistently evolve and change. And so what, what happens is we pick a time— 1958, 1841, and we decide that that is when everything was right and we stick to it, and then until the next generation comes along and decides, oh, everything was right in 2004, so we're going to stick to 2004. The music of that time period, the pews of that time period, the way we dress in that time period, those are the super-Christians, the ones who do things like they did in 2004. It almost becomes arbitrary. And I don't mean that to be critical at all, because there are certain aspects of church history that I love too. But I wonder if maybe we're making the stuff that's important a little more important than it should be. So I'm going to explain that here in a moment. In my mind, there are two important components to this. The first is to understand our relationship with God when it comes to our epistemology, our role in all of this. The second is for us to understand what the gospel actually is and what it isn't. Let's start with the first one. God is still God, the truth is still the truth, and the gospel of Jesus Christ remains timeless. However, we humans remain flawed. Charles Hodge, for the theology nerds out there, might be an odd name to hear from the United Methodist pulpit. Uh, Hodge was a staunch Calvinist and a strong uh, proponent of the biblical literist movement that began during the Civil War, this notion of looking at the Bible differently than Christians had looked at it for 1,800 years prior, uh, and looking at it in a new light that was a little more simplistic. And uh, he, had a, he was very strong in this push to move away from those uh, long-held understandings about the Bible into a notion as the Bible is something different. Uh, But uh, he also uh, was, despite being kind of the bastion of fundamentalism and this literalism movement, uh, he also uh, was one who was a big proponent of what's called progressive revelation, which is not something he came up with. That's something that that Christians have understood for hundreds of years. But I really like the way he explains it in this. He says, The progressive character of divine revelation is recognized in relation to all the great doctrines of the Bible. What at first is only obscurely imitated— is gradually unfolded in subsequent parts of the sacred volume until one day when the truth is revealed in its fullness. Basically, Hodge, a theologian, is answering the question of why is God so different in the Old Testament than the New? 
And, and why is the church different today than it was then? And why, for example, can you profess a belief that's different than what early Christians believed about the Bible? Rather than professing it as something that needs to be understood and interpreted, he's professing that it should be read simplistically and applied literally, right? And so how does that work? And, John, and Chris Hodge would say, well, look, just like in the Old Testament and the New Testament, over time, human beings begin to understand a little bit more about God. It's not that God has changed radically over the years. It's that humans are beginning to understand more of God. In the time of the Old Testament, the lens was cloudy. Jesus Christ is the most clear lens that has ever existed for God. And Jesus Christ came to us. But even our lens into Jesus Christ is itself a little bit cloudy. And over time, we begin to understand more and more about God. That's a little scary. Because progressive revelation is something you could use to justify any sort of belief, right? Well, the Holy Spirit led me to believe something different. Led me to believe that the sky is green. Right? But... Just because it can lead to that doesn't mean it isn't the truth. That God does, over time, let us know a little bit more about who he is. One thing we can't do is be afraid of challenging our faith. If we're afraid of challenging the things that we believe, then we're afraid of growth. We're afraid of God. Because God might lead us to learn more things about him that we never would have known if we simply believed that at some point in our life we had it all figured out and we don't want to learn anything past that. The second way is a little harder. You know, it's funny. It used to be impolite to discuss politics at the dinner table. Now it seems like almost a necessity. And it amazes me the number of people who become passionate about politics to the point of making it a litmus test. If you don't vote the way they do, then you're absolutely not, can't possibly be a friend. It's amazing the people that you run into on the street who just have to know how you believe about a certain issue. Some, and it, what's really fascinating about it is that, you know, six months ago we weren't talking about whatever issue. Three months ago, we'd never heard of it, but now it's the most important thing that's ever happened to you in your life because someone on the news told you that it's important, and so now you have to ask everybody how they feel about it, and if they feel differently or aren't sure, which is a camp I find myself in a lot, especially with new issues, maybe I'd like to hear more about it rather than just take the first reaction that I get. Then suddenly you're, again, wrong. But, but I think I'm right, so how does that work? So I, we're back to the beginning, right? So we're back to everyone is right except that everyone is wrong right? Somehow, somehow we've got to figure out how to make this work. A fascinating thing I read a while back was about how our morals develop, which is something that was really interesting to me. How, how do our, our brains develop morality? Well, it turns out in small children, so two to three years old, most things are moral. In other words, most things that they prefer, they consider to be moral. So their morals are, they're starting to flesh them out. That's about the age that they're starting to realize that some things are good and some things are bad, right? And that some people are good and some people are bad. And some people are nice and some people are mean. But what they don't yet understand is that some things are just preferences and some things are no big deal. So if a child at that age believes the color blue is the best color because they like it the best, they would believe that the other colors are in a way immoral. Now, they don't have the same understanding of morality that we do, so they're not going to run for president on the ticket of get rid of all colors but blue. But they do have the same feeling they do about their favorite color as they do about God or as they do about being nice to people, right? It's a morality for them. If you don't believe me, try to feed a two-year-old food that they don't like and show me that it's not their belief that that food came from the devil, right? <clears throat> or my 21-year-old sister who still feels that way about food, but uh, see, she's not here so I can make fun of her. You know, one thing I witnessed at the General Conference this year and, and in our whole political system in America this year is that we seem to be regressing. Suddenly, everything's a moral issue again. 
A lot of things are. There are real moral issues out there. Don't get me wrong and don't mishear me. But maybe not every single thing is the most important. You know, I think there are shelves in our lives. Uh, the very top shelf are the absolute essentials. That, for me, should be a shelf reserved for the gospel and nothing else. Nothing else. Jesus Christ came and died. He rose again. He offers salvation. End of story. Period. That's it. And nothing else up there. No social issues. No politics. Know what kind of car you drive. Not that the other stuff's not important, but we've got to believe that that gospel is the most important, right? But what's happening is we want to put everything else on that shelf with it, and we drown the gospel out. Suddenly, we put our politics on that shelf. We put socialism on that shelf, stuff that is important, but maybe it belongs one shelf or two shelves or three shelves below it. We choke the gospel out when we make everything the most important. And so the first way I think we heed Paul's words to not distort the gospel is by not distorting the gospel, Right? The first way that we do in not trying to to change the gospel is by focusing on the gospel, understanding what the gospel is, understanding first off that we're not God and that we might still have things to figure out, right? One thing that bothers me is when people believe that they are unequivocally right and can't possibly be wrong, right? And I I get the need for that, I guess. It's amazing, you know, if if a politician does change their mind, uh, they get absolutely chastised for having changed their mind because... It's like it's a virtue to have believed the same thing your whole life without ever having grown, which is amazing because isn't growth a part of life, to learn more and to grow more? So the first thing, I think, in understanding the gospel, as Paul explains it, is to understand that God is the one who offers it to us, not us. We're not God, right? And the second thing is to understand that we have to get some priorities in order. If we're going to do what Paul tells us to do, and if we're going to take and share this gospel and not let it get distorted by the things of the world, then we've got to stop putting the things of the world on the shelf alongside it. Why do you think Jesus spent so much time talking about salvation and so little time or no time talking about a great deal of other issues happening in the world? He was uninterested in the Roman occupation. The horrific practice of exposure where uh, unwanted children were taken out in the desert and left to die was ignored by Jesus. He, he, uh, this is stuff like the places he was walking through were places where this practice was happening. He never mentions it. Not because it wasn't important, folks. Don't get me wrong. Whether Jesus didn't care, I'm sure he did. But, and John told us at the end of John that there were thousands more things that happened that, he didn't, that just didn't get written down. But clearly there was one mission, one essential and that was our salvation through Jesus Christ. Things that matter in eternity, which must matter more to God than things that happen during our time here. So to faithfully heed Paul's warning and not straying from the gospel, while still recognizing and owning the fact that Christians today are not who Christians were 2,000 years ago, comes by understanding the gospel and what it is. By figuring out what the most essentials are so we can figure out what our orthodoxy and our orthopraxy are. When I read our lectionary scriptures this morning, uh, or it's not this morning, last week, uh, and, and prayed for this morning's sermon, I prayed about it as I always do, and I wondered how to respond to all that's happening in our world today. I'm, I mean, I'm, I'm just honest with you guys. I'm continually frustrated by the political process, mostly because of how both sides don't have any room for the other. I'm a person who finds myself in the middle. I like what Adam Hamilton has to say. People, say, people ask him, and he says, Adam says, the people ask me, are you liberal or conservative? And he says, yes. I think I would answer the same way. You know, because I think that there are things that people on every side of the spectrum have to offer. I think that there is good in most people, and I think that we can learn from most people. So the notion that only people who are exactly like us are worth, I know I talk about that a lot, but but it's because I keep hearing it in our world, because I want us to be a church that does something different, 
that, that exemplifies something different, that shows the world something different, that doesn't perpetuate the hate and anger for people who believe differently than us, not because all beliefs are valid and all views are valid and all politics don't matter, but because something has got to be the most important thing in our lives, and it can't be everything. Something has got to be the most important part of our lives, and it can't be everything. Continue to passionately believe what we believe. Continue to flesh out what we believe. Continue to to understand the gospel in its fullness, but still put that essential part of salvation on the very top shelf alone without anything else and figure out what belongs in the shelves below it. But don't choke the gospel out with everything else and tie everything else to it. I see this a lot in the way that churches work together or don't anymore. In years past, they did, not because they all agreed on the same things, they were vastly different then as they're vastly different now. The Christian church has always been vastly different. That's why it's been breaking apart and splitting for 2,000 years. That's why there's always been different Christian churches and different groups among Christianity. It's why Paul had to write these letters to explain to the people what it is they were supposed to be believing because they were dividing amongst themselves and unsure. But Christians have always been able to get along because we've been able to put the gospel on the top shelf and say, if Jesus Christ is your Lord and Savior, let's get some work done. But when we put everything else on the top shelf, suddenly we say, if Jesus Christ is your Lord and Savior, and you ordain these people, and your church looks this way, and you use this kind of music, and you believe this about human sexuality, and you believe this about the color of the pews you use, and this is what you wear to church, and, and suddenly the shelf, we add onto the shelf, and we add on the shelf, and nobody else fits on the shelf. Because we have our super specific idea about God, and we forget that that belongs within the Walter denomination and not in the mission field. There's time for that. But we, we cram everything into one spot. So there it is, folks. From Paul's warning to now, I think in our attempt to adhere to Paul's warning, we've actually done quite the opposite. Our desire to be right, our desire to be the ones who have it all correct, has taken us to a point where we have forgotten the whole essential part of the gospel. So friends, I'm really excited about what's going on in our world today, as much as I am disappointed in parts of it. I'm excited of our confirmants, five young people who, uh, last week who, who packed the church to express their faith in God, not because they had it all perfect or they got everything figured out, but because they understood first that essential part that they put on their top shelf, their professing faith in Jesus Christ, and because they have said that I want to spend the rest of my life figuring it out. And that's all I think God asks of us, just to spend your life figuring it out. Figure it out and work for God and serve God. What would happen if we got less questions political beliefs, and more questions about how we can continue to serve God. What if when we got together with other churches, we didn't say, well, what do they believe about this? We said, how can we help them in their mission to do this? (laughs) When we run out of need in our world, then we can bicker about the differences. When we run out of people who need to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ, then we can bicker about what other aspects of the gospel they'll hear. But for now, I think there's plenty for us to do to keep us occupied and beyond the 24-hour news cycle of everyone else who's wrong because we're all right. So friends, my prayer for us this week and in the weeks to come as we head off annual conferences next weekend, and I can't wait. Annual conference is very different than general conference. Uh, I'm very proud of the people in Missouri Conference and how well they work together. Even though we've had some instances of differences, nothing as profound as general conference, but last year, for example, we voted to sell a number of our historic camps that we've had for a number of years. It was a business decision that was very emotional and painful, but But what I saw were my colleagues and friends coming together. Once the decision was made, they say, all right now, let's get to work and figure out how to find God in the midst of this. Something I didn't really see, I don't really see in politics. There's always a winner and a loser. What's one thing you never see in politics is when November is over and and November 2nd is over and and the losing candidate, uh, 
they don't say, okay, now what can we do to advance the country? They say, okay, how are we going to win the next election? Or how are we going to flip Congress so that this person doesn't have any power? Or how are we going to make sure that this person is obstructed and, and can't possibly pass any legislation? Right? What would happen if we did that a little more? So I'm really excited for annual conference. I'm excited for, I'm excited for our church. The worry I have is for the world outside these walls. But I think that if anyone has the capacity to change it, it's the folks inside these walls. The folks who, are, who love God and are compassionate and want to go out into the world and say that the gospel is my most important thing, the gospel sits on the top of my shelf, and I want to share that with you. Amen.